Welcome to Musicians vs. the World. You know, there is something really special about Chopin's music. It's not simple music, but there's a beautiful simplicity to it and a balance, and that gives the performer a chance to share a very intimate glimpse into their mind and to their heart. You know, it takes a lot of control and sensitivity to play Chopin well, and it is a favorite of pianists and teachers and listeners alike. It's 100% deserving of its popularity. So it would be fair to think that pulling out, say, a Chopin ballade, like the one you're listening to right now, which is the third one, by the way, you'd think that something like that would be a natural choice for an audition. Well, it turns out that you may want to rethink that choice. And in fact, playing a well-beloved standard may actually hurt your chances in an audition. In this second part of our audition series, we finish up our conversation with Dr. Scott Holden from Brigham Young University. Dr. Holden is a respected performer and teacher with a long list of accomplishments and accolades from around the world. He's currently serving as chair of keyboard studies at Brigham Young University, and he has a new website for aspiring pianists called Piano Think. And Dr. Holden was kind enough to speak with me over the phone a few weeks ago, and he gave me so many wonderful insights into auditioning and into teaching that I had to divide it up into two episodes. So without further ado, here is the second half of my interview with Dr. Holden. Let's get into it. How do repertoire choices actually affect the outcome of an audition? Does it even really matter what you choose to play? Uh, yeah, choosing the right repertoire is essential. I think, again, it's important to choose a repertoire that uh, of course, the student loves, and, and that matches their kind of pianistic ability, not just skills uh, level, but things like if a student's really good with chords or octaves, you know, making sure they have repertoire that maybe uh, fits that kind of thing. But but also repertoire that I think is um, not necessarily just the standard repertoire. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, I'm kind of airing my... Uh, <laughs> secrets here. In audition day, I make a um, tally of all of the, uh, just because out of curiosity of uh, say like the Bach prelude and fugues in B flat or the pathetique sonatas, you hear those pieces a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm, it's not that I'm against them, but having something that's a little bit more original, I think makes people stand out a lot. Um, I'm not good with people's names, I can remember what they played in auditions, especially if if someone was playing uh, a, a Ludoslavsky etude or something. That uh, wow, um, I, I won't remember the name, but I'll say, what about what about that young woman? She played uh, the Ludoslavsky. That, um, that really got my attention. Um, yeah. But I won't necessarily say what about the one who played the the Pathetique Sonata because that's you you know that means well which one of the ten that we heard that day that played that piece. Um, gotcha. So, yeah. of, of course, it, it, again, it depends on the quality of the performance. Yes. So, uh, from what I'm hearing, you've said Pathetique Sonata quite a few times. So, that's probably <laughs> the most performed audition piece you've heard then. <laughs> well, it gets played a lot. And it, it is a masterpiece. It's an amazing piece at every level. But... A piece like that, again, uh, the, the first page is notorious for very careful counting and subdivision. Yes. Um, and then the uh, faster sections for good, clean finger work. 
So it's a kind of um, speed trap, we'll call it. Not not the sense of going fast, but just the sense of like like in there's a city in Utah, uh, Wellington, Utah. There's uh, I've gotten a speed speeding ticket there, as a lot of people have, because there's it's a it's a speed trap town. Uh, now I drive very carefully in that town, but in, uh, a, that, that piece is a speed trap, so to speak, in that I kind of know in my head where to subdivide the counting to check if they're really counting, uh, because mm. it's commonly uh, missed. Of course, anything you play needs to be accurate, but there are certain things that I'm already going to check for because I've heard them be problems in many other auditions. One, one of my colleagues... Um, had a student playing the Tempest Sonata uh, in his audition. And and in the second movement, he said, you better make sure you're counting carefully because I promise you that uh, myself and uh, one of my colleagues who's recently retired, Jeff Shumway, will be, <laughs> will be counting in those long-held notes. And he said during the audition, he looked over and that we were both slightly conducting <laughs> to check. Um, he, he knew us well. But um, yeah, there's certain pieces that, yeah, we will be expectations. Absolutely. I played that sonata with Dr. Shumway and yes. I remember that exact same thing. Yes. <laughs> that is a true story. I'm not that student, but it no, happened no. to other students. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In an audition situation, as opposed to a recital situation, I always recommend that students start with a piece that can kind of grab the um, the jury members uh, by the collar. Now, in a recital, you normally kind of build to the big finish. Right. Um, if they can start comfortably with a piece that makes a big statement, I, I think that's very important if they feel comfortable starting that way. Because in an audition, of course, you, you don't really know the order that you're going to play things in, and you're, it's unlikely you're going to be able to play to the end of something, depending on the length of the audition or the circumstances. In a piano competition, that would be a little bit different. But sometimes um, a student, for instance, will start uh, a college audition with Bach. And uh, I love Bach, and I play a fair amount of Bach, and, uh, and I think it's like the greatest music ever composed. Uh, but at the same time, it won't necessarily, it better be at a really high level. Um, I, it's very sophisticated music, so I think it's a hard composer to start with. In our auditions, I will usually let people play a little longer for their first piece, just so they can feel a little grounded before we start moving uh, into other repertoire. So it's important that they, they get some time to kind of just grab us right away. I remember, Christine, that we worked, me and you, we worked on this Messian Etude. Yes. Um, and... That, I think, would be a fantastic piece to start an audition with. One, because it's totally off the beaten track, um, and I get excited by repertoire that we don't normally hear. Um, mm -hmm. Two, it, it's a very noisy, that, that was a very noisy piece, and, uh, <laughs> and it's quasi-tonal, quasi-atonal, kind of at the same time. And really, if you miss some notes, um, just because of the style of the piece, I don't mean a lot of notes, but it would not be so noticeable that if you were like playing a Mozart sonata where it's right. so exposed. And at, at the same time, I just, I'm immediately biased towards this person. I'm thinking, wow, I can't believe they're playing this messy on a two. This is so fantastic. Um, if, if you play, let's say, uh, you know, a very standard repertoire piece, like the G minor ballad. 
Pathetique Sonata or Passionata or something like this. I mean, th those are amazing pieces, but every person there has, will have taught them many, many, many times, not to mention all of the times I've heard some miraculous performance of, uh, of one of those pieces, uh, either live or um, in uh, recordings. The, the joke with the G minor ballad is that um, sometimes a teacher spends more time working on the first eight measures of that piece than they do on the rest of the piece combined. Um, so um, a piece like the Messiaen, I don't already have a gazillion kind of preconceptions of how I think the piece should go or what makes that piece work well. Um, um, I, I'm just excited. I'm like, wow, this is an original thinker. And that piece is so visceral and kind of muscular. It makes a big statement. Uh, so to start an audition like that with a piece uh, like that, that kind of grabs us by the collar at so many levels, that, that's already going to, uh, it can only help your audition. To start sometimes with the very safe kind of um, passive choice, so to speak, like uh, Bach, Prelude, and Fugue, I don't think that's as effective. But again, it, it depends ultimately on the intensity of the artistry, whatever's being played. So it's interesting. So they have a 10-minute audition, but they really have 30 seconds to a minute <laughs> for you to make a decision on whether you want to listen to them or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like I said, we, we now have... No pressure, kids. <laughs> we do pre-screenings now, so uh, the level is much higher. What is an audition piece that surprised you and grabbed you thinking about all those different auditions you've done is there is there a moment that you remember that you just were wow i was not expecting that piece to come out of that person hmm. well that's a good question um because i listen to a lot of auditions yes i bet you um, do. i don't know ultimately even though here i'm talking a lot about the repertoire i don't think i don't think there's a moment where i heard a particular piece i guess there have been a few um it, but to me, again, it's it's more the intensity of the artistry that mm -hmm. is performed with. That doesn't necessarily mean faster, louder, um, in terms of its you know intensity, but the sense that every note had meaning, had um, something to say. I heard a great story from a judge in the Rubenstein competition, and. She said that but one of the competitors was a young pianist named Daniil Trifonov, of course, one of the superstars today of the kind of younger pianist generation. And this was before he was famous. And they said after the first round that the judges were backstage and they were doing probably what they shouldn't have done, because uh, normally you're not supposed to talk about anything you've heard. But they all felt like, well, we could already end the competition. We already know who's going to win. It's, it's this guy. <laughs> Um, because she said every note had, uh, a reason for being, there was like, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, function both harmonically, musically, um, it's function as contrast, it's function, um, as interesting texture, um, all these things were just completely obvious and clear and, uh, kind of just jumping off stage. So I can think of a lot of auditions where, you know, that kind of situation presented itself. And ultimately that supersedes the repertoire. But I, I bring up the repertoire because that is a, um, I think it's important just to, to choose wisely. So if your audition consists of, let's say, the Pathetic Sonata and uh, Bach B 
B-flat Prelude Fugue and the Fantasy Impromptu, well, uh, to me, it doesn't show particularly interesting repertoire uh, when you think of the scope of the magnificent repertoire there is for the piano. Um, now, that, that might be the choice of the teacher. It might be the choice of the student. But it doesn't really set them apart as, well, this is going to be really interesting because it, it's already going to have so many commonalities with many other students. Yeah, they just kind of like fade in to yeah. all, of the, now, all of the crowd. Here I've been picking on that piece. Again, every once in a while you hear it play and you go, this, this is such a great piece. And they played it fabulously. Um, and, and it makes me think, why don't we hear this piece more often in the concert hall <laughs> as opposed to kind of the, the well-meaning uh, high school student? So sometimes those pieces can transcend as well, but, um, but I think it can be a little bit harder to. Yes, because they're so popular, it's harder to make those stand out for sure. Yes. So that's from a judge's standpoint. From a teacher's standpoint, we've talked about having our students perform for lots of people seven or eight times before the actual audition. We've talked about repertoire choices. Is there anything else that you do to help your students prepare for an audition? Yeah, well, that, that's a great question. And um, thinking a little bit more holistically, teaching is, is such a interesting thing and a hard thing. I really do not want my students to be what I call my marionette. I want them to do everything I tell them to do. But ultimately, I want, I want it to be theirs. I just don't want them. I want them to make choices uh, in the experience and not just do exactly what I tell them to do. I want them to own the piece and it may have some, hopefully, my best fingerprints there, but ultimately I want it to be them expressing themselves. And I know that's a hard thing to put in words, but as, as teachers, you know, we know our students so well. And uh, not infrequently, I'll hear my students recital, and I feel like not only did they play well, but it embodied the very aspects of their personality uh, that makes them unique. And it came out through their playing. Uh, I... I, uh, that's, that's my goal. <laughs> so in a recital and, and hopefully in an audition, in the audition situation, of course, the judges don't know anything about the performer, what, what they're like as a person. But, um, but sometimes those things I think can hop off of the stage and can be very obvious too. I have a student who just, uh, graduated and she is uh, a big character and, um, uh, very funny and outgoing and kind of gregarious. And her playing is like that. And she had played uh, a concerto with the orchestra um, last spring. Um, and those qualities just were so abundant in her presence and her um, interpretation. It was just a beautiful overlap of her personality coming out in her playing. So that's, that's kind of my goal. Sorry, I lost track of the question, but that's, no, I love that, it. that's kind working. of the background. But what was the question again? Oh, the question was as a teacher, what you do to prepare for auditions. But I actually like what you said though, because I think that it paints teachers as someone who empowers their students to let themselves come through. And you were talking about a gregarious student. And I think that's absolutely true for them. And I also love it when I see one of my introverted and quiet students get up there and finally have permission to let their huge personality that's just kind of waiting on the inside, yes. but it actually comes out when they're playing. When the music starts, they become a completely different person. Yes. I tell you, that is such 
such a wonderful feeling as a teacher to see a student do that. Very empowering. And I think as a musician, you're, you're a little bit of an actor, you know, you're whatever character the music needs to be. (laughs) And I, by nature, I'm actually relatively shy, but on stage, I get to be whatever the music is. (laughs) So, um, this is, uh, yeah, empowering. Um, I think as, as I'm preparing a student for an audition, usually it looks like this. Um, there'll be pretty intense detail oriented things. Um, and I should say one thing I like to talk about to show in classical music is I, I often ask this question, what is weird? Like what is weird about this phrase? And sometimes we're, we live as a student so close to the piece. It's hard to have a larger view. Like, uh, like what is weird? Oh, well, here they're completely avoiding the dominant chord that they've been setting up for you know a page and a half, and sometimes a student just doesn't recognize that uh, because they're a little too close to the situation. Um, or what is weird about this chord? Or what is weird about this resolution? Or this strange dynamic? Or what is odd about this contrast of this phrase to what was just behind it? So making sure the student understands how the piece is um, unusual, shocking, odd, you know, a masterpiece, all these things that make it non-conforming in a way to what it was supposed to do. Basically, what proves that it was written by a genius. So I want to continually remind the student of those things. In the teaching process, uh, there's a lot of detail there. As they get very close to the audition, I tend to back up a little bit and just focus on the bigger picture as opposed to the details. Often in the last lesson or two, I will be try to be very, very positive. Oh, this sounds so strong or keep doing this. You know, this, this will make it sound even better. So they leave on a high note and feel very, hopefully as confident as possible. A good friend of mine, uh, was in their last lesson, uh, at Juilliard (laughs) before their master's recital. And the teacher said, if you miss that first note, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that's not good teaching <laughs> that's no. a terrible thing to say um, yes it is um, so it just, you shouldn't be up there feeling defensive you should be ready to go out and just go for it <laughs> how did how'd your friend do? did he miss the note? Um, I, I don't remember but it, la- it left a scar <laughs> <you know? laughs> as if it wasn't enough pressure right, oh my goodness um, sometimes I'll tell a student okay look Forget about every little, because I write my students with lots of markings and color. I say, forget about all those little markings. (laughs) Just make it your own. And uh, I often backstage, I'll meet them before a recital. I'll say, okay, take all your dynamics and double them (laughs) and make all of your tempos very conservative. And I also tell them, have fun, you know, take some chances. Um, Do some things that we hadn't talked about or that you hadn't even thought about um, and be willing to... uh, be willing, this sounds like an odd thing, be willing to miss a few notes. Um, Now, that's a very slippery slope, but uh, give them permission to to, uh, make it a fresh, creative experience and not a, what I call a recreative experience. It's that idea of like, well, I did it 999 times, now I'll do it the thousandth time. Um, But do it the first time, so to speak. (laughs) Um, Come back to it the way you heard it the first time. I like that. Do they usually do that or does it usually end up becoming somewhere uh, in between? I've, I've had, I think, good experience with that. Uh, it feels, it can feel fresh um, and giving them permission to, to take some chances, I think is a good thing. I like what Horowitz said. Um, 
he said uh, something about, you know, I take lots of chances. He said, if you want me to play no perfect, I can do that. But because I'm always willing to try something different, you know, I, I might miss a note or two in the process. Um, mm-hmm. one, one thing that I think is very helpful for maybe a little bit more advanced student is playing chamber music because it's a very reactive process. You are hearing someone and reacting to that. And even though it's rehearsed, sometimes they do it in a way that you weren't expecting or you do it in a way that wasn't they weren't expecting. Um, you, you know, you hold that fermata twice as long as you'd ever done in rehearsal. Uh, right. Or... Um, or you do a subito piano that they weren't expecting, uh, but then they react to it. And that, that's a really magical moment because you become completely entranced by that spontaneity. You stop thinking about yourself or thinking defensively. If you can make those same things happen in your solo playing, and sometimes this looks like, okay, what, what part, what dynamic are you looking forward to? Uh, that, that I might ask the student, you know, well, that, that Subito Forte, you know, they might play it in a way even more so that they had done. Um, and, and they're kind of shocked by the music. Um, I had a student just this uh, last night who she had just won a competition over the weekend. And she said, it was such a pleasure playing on that nine foot uh, Steinway piano that made all of these colors possible that my own, uh, rehearsal piano, my, my practice piano wouldn't do. And I had the sense that in that piece, she was kind of lost in that spontaneity of just hearing these incredible harmonies with a new kind of uh, possibility of palettes of, of color or dynamic that hadn't been uh, available to her before that it came alive. And it, it, she returned to that kind of second naivety. And so she wasn't thinking about the judges you know, by the way, something else I tell the students about judges, I, I just always remind them, look, it's just a person just like you. And earlier this morning, they were asleep, snoring, drooling on their pillow. <laughs> They're just farther down the road. It's just some person. So I, I, I don't think they need to take them so seriously. What they need to take seriously is to match their potential that they've proven to themselves in, in performance. Sometimes it's 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 good to be reminded. Uh, I was judging at a music festival in Wyoming a few years ago, and I said, "Boy, the students—they come and they look so serious." <laughs> and the, my uh, host there said, "Did it ever occur to you that they might be intimidated?" And I thought, "Really? <laughs> By me? <laughs> They're intimidated? <laughs> I'm just some guy who's like drove up for the weekend to judge, you know." <laughs> um, um, and like you said, they, sometimes they look grumpy. It's, you know, maybe I just didn't sleep well in the hotel. It has, it has nothing whatsoever to do with them. So as a judge, do you find yourself cheering for them more often than not? I'm always cheering for them. I'm never not cheering for them. Uh, always. There's never any moment that I wish them not to play well and to play their best. I, I totally understand how stressful it is and how much time it took and I cheer that collectively it's taken thousands of hours to get them at that point. I cheer that that's thousands of hours less of their life spent playing video games or doing any other kind of, uh, you know, kind of semi-frivolous things uh, that they've chosen to do something that's difficult. I, I think it's awesome that they're there. So um, it's, it's our job as adjudicators to write notes about their playing of things that could be better 
but I, I almost wish I, 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 I should make like a little form letter that says these things. I'm cheering for you all the time and send it out with my comments. So it's not just perceived as uh, negative because I, I think it's awesome that they're doing this. And that is what makes you a wonderful teacher. I'm sure you make it such a good experience for all of the students that get to well, play for you. I don't know. I, I hope so. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Thank you so much for coming and talking with me today. It's so nice to talk to Christine, and um, thank you for doing this project. I think it's fabulous. Next time on Musicians Versus the World. The way you get into an orchestra is you win an audition. You think auditions end with college? Well, think again if you want to play with an orchestra. Anyway, for many years, every first of the month, Brian gets up early and checks to see what the jobs are. We'll finish up our series on auditions with a conversation with Brian and Madeline Blanchard, all about life, love, family, and of course, auditions for the professional orchestral musician. Musicians vs. the World is produced by Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. This episode was produced by Russ Wilkes and edited by myself. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Holden of Brigham Young University for sharing his time and expertise with us, as well as the gorgeous music you are hearing right now. In case you are wondering, it is Chopin's third ballade in A-flat major. For more tutorials and words of wisdom from Dr. Holden, as well as to hear more of his recordings, check out his website, pianothink.com, and his YouTube channel, Pianothink. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss out on any future conversations. If there's a topic that you would love to hear about, send us an email at info at frostedlens.com. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and on our Musicians vs. the World section of the Frosted Lens website. And that website is frostedlens.com.